You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Chris is off tonight. The provincial government is turning up the pressure on municipalities to build more housing and today revealed the targets it has set for the 10 communities it has singled out. Richard Zussman joins us with more on the 10 municipalities been given five years to meet the province's goals. Richard. This is exactly what the province wants to see, Sophie. One of those communities, in this case Victoria, building homes. But it's not happening fast enough and there aren't enough houses being built. So now the province is putting those municipalities on notice. The target's now set as the province hammers home the message to municipalities. Build more housing. Well, I'm not expecting it to completely turn around in six months, but we want to see communities uh, taking the steps to show that there's a commitment to this. The target's outlining a mix of building rental and non-rentals and pinpoints what size of units are needed in the 10 municipalities with the most dire housing needs. The city of Vancouver needs to build nearly 29,000 units over five years. Delta, a little more than 3,600 units. Port Moody, nearly 1,700 units. North Vancouver, more than 2,800 units. And the District of West Vancouver, needing to build more than 1,400 units. These targets reflect about a 38% increase in current builds and are based on getting to 75% of the housing needed. At the core of this will be the question that does a, when, how does a stroke of a pen result in a swing of a hammer? And I think that that's really going to be one of the ongoing challenges. The biggest pressure point, population growth. With the province adding more than 250,000 people over the past two years. Meaning even with these targets, the province will struggle to make housing affordable. On Vancouver Island, Saanich needs more than 4,600 units. Victoria, more than 4,900 units. And Oak Bay, 664 units. Well, I haven't seen anything in here that actually addresses costs. Um, and, and unless we can actually reduce the cost of building housing, we're never going to be able to reduce the cost of housing. The mayor there says the province can make all the targets it wants, but it won't solve the problem alone. They are all really entirely dependent upon the market stepping up to build. So I think the question we have is how do we uh, incent the market or help the market look to actually build the housing that we need. All right, Richard, there was also supposed to be a federal housing announcement today about accelerating affordable housing, but that was suddenly cancelled, and I mean very suddenly, and it has something to do with Metro Vancouver's development cost charges. There's a lot to unpack here, Sophie. This was supposed to be a big day for Burnaby and Surrey. They were going to get some of the $4 billion the federal government has put aside for a housing accelerator fund. But we got news from the housing minister, the federal one, Sean Fraser, saying that those municipalities no longer meet the federal criteria. The reason why it's all about a development cost charge that the board in Metro Vancouver is floating. That's a charge that could add between about ten and $25,000 in extra charges to developers who build housing. Because of that, uh, the federal government has now stepped aside and said the cities in Metro Vancouver will not be eligible for this fund until that charge is lifted. The provincial housing minister, Ravi Kalon, has now stepped in. I spoke to him just about an hour ago. He says he's called the federal minister, Sean Fraser. He says there needs to be a conversation now between Ottawa and the 
municipalities, and he believes that this development charge should be lifted, no longer applied to the community so that those communities can have access to the Housing Accelerator Fund and so many other communities in B.C. that so desperately need that money to build housing like this. All right, we'll see what happens in the days ahead. Richard, thank you. A recent study on the impact of short-term rentals is resonating in an Okanagan city that has struggled with that issue. The McGill University study found short-term rentals contributed to 28% of rent increases last year and led to renters absorbing $2 billion in costs since 2016. The city of Penticton has recently agreed to step up enforcement, introduce a new classification system, and ask short-term rental platforms not to list properties that don't have a business license. But activists say the provincial government should take action. A lot of municipalities don't have the resources like the big cities to come up with you know, regulatory frameworks, registries, and paying for enforcement. So municipal governments have realized that it may make sense to um, look at this more holistically from the, from the lens of the government provincially. The nonprofit organization is recommending the creation of a province-wide registry for short-term rentals. An investigation is underway into what caused a helicopter to crash near a ski resort uh, near Prince George early this morning, claiming two lives. Several other people were rushed to hospital. Catherine Urquhart has more. Emergency responders rushed to save the lives of six people after a helicopter crashes about 50 kilometers east of Prince George near Purden Ski Hill. It's just after 7.30 a.m. when the Bell 206L chopper goes down. Emergency health services attended with um, multiple um, ambulances and su their supervisors as well and are treating um, those that were located on board. Also called to the scene, the Transportation Safety Board, which is investigating the crash. They confirm two people did not survive. Four others were taken to hospital in Prince George, where they're recovering from minor injuries. We are asking that any motorists that are passing by on the highway slow down and move over to give emergency crews room to work. The helicopter was privately owned. It remains unclear why the chopper was chartered and the names of those involved have not been released. A parallel investigation is being done by the BC Coroner Service. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Traffic slowed along Highway 1 through the Fraser Valley this afternoon as an RCMP procession traveled through Abbotsford. The escort for fallen officer Constable Rick O'Brien killed in the line of duty on Friday while executing a drug warrant in Coquitlam. Grace Key is live with more on today's procession. Grace. Yeah, we're here at the Ridge Metal RCMP detachment where behind me is the growing memorial for Constable O'Brien. Now, earlier his family was here. From what I'm told, this is the first time a lot of them got a chance to see the memorial. We kind of gave them some privacy from our camera so they can get a closer look at some of those flowers and messages of support. They arrived here after the procession.
bagpipes and honor guard were on hand as the procession began at one o'clock at Abbotsford Regional Hospital. More than 100 emergency vehicles took part. All had their lights on as they escorted the officer's body to a nearby funeral home. Dozens of civilians and first responders from various agencies around the Lower Mainland lined the overpass along Highway 1. And officers saluted when the vehicle carrying the constable's body, uh, body drove by. Now, because there's been so many people wanting to just drop off flowers and messages of support here, a condolence book has also been added. Now, it's usually made available for folks just between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., but thanks to some of those great volunteers here, they are extending those hours this week. So if you want to drop by, it's going to be made available until 7 o'clock in the evening. Sophie? All right, thanks for that. Grace Key reporting live at the Ridge Meadows RCMP detachment. The Integrated Homicide Investigation Team is investigating a man's death on a Sunshine Coast logging road. Police say 58-year-old Vancouver man Henry Doyle was found Saturday suffering from serious injuries on the Klein Lake Forest Service Road near Egmont. Despite the actions of first responders, Doyle died and his death has been deemed suspicious. Investigators say he'd been riding his dirt bike in the area. It was found nearby. IHIT is asking anyone who saw Henry Doyle or anything suspicious in the Klein Lake area this past weekend to get in touch. And we are learning more about what's potentially a key piece of evidence in the investigation into the June killing of Sikh activist Hardeep Singh Nijar. People who have seen surveillance video shot outside Nijar's Surrey Gurdwara say it shows his shooting and the movements of his killers. But as Kamal Karmali reports, that evidence has not yet been made public. It's a video that details the last minutes of Hardeep Singh Nijar's life. It was tough to watch. The surveillance video first reported on by the Washington Post has not been viewed by Global News. But we spoke with three community leaders who did. This is well planned, orchestrated. They say the video shows Nijer's truck pulling out of its parking spot at the Guru Nanak Gurdwara in Surrey. It then shows Nijer's vehicle speed up as a white van starts driving beside the truck. The truck then reaches the parking lot's back exit, but the white van pulls out in front to block Nijer's truck from leaving. That car was used as a blocker car uh, to block Mr. Hardeep Singh Nijar in while the assassins came and shot um, at him from the driver's seat. He says the two men appear from a covered area where they were waiting. There are roughly about 40, 50 shots fired. And uh, from I just read in the post, the post is reporting there's 34 shots hit him. The spokesperson says the two shooters then got into a waiting silver car with three other men. The driver of the white van fled six people in two vehicles. That is, I think is more of a revelation for most people uh, that there was a footage of a, another vehicle. Witnesses claim police took roughly 15 minutes to arrive and there was confusion between Surrey police officers and the RCMP. The Surrey Police Service says that the alleged disagreement on who would take lead on the investigation is quote completely false saying that the Surrey RCMP had operational control. Surrey RCMP say the first officers were on scene in four minutes. Nidger's friends say he had been worried for his life leading up to the shooting. He came to my home to tell me that the tracker was found on the bottom of his uh, of his vehicle in the wheel well. 
um, of the same pickup truck that he was killed in. Sikh community leaders are not making the video public because of the ongoing police investigation and are conducting an internal investigation on who may have shared it. Kamel Karamali, Global News. Bad news for BC United. The party's rebrand isn't the revitalization they had been hoping for. What a new poll predicts would happen if an election were to be held today. That's next on the News Hour. The long journey home, a stolen 19th century Nishka totem pole, is back on Canadian soil. Plus. We've reached out two times now to the Ministry of Transportation and to the Solicitor General. The drive to save lives on the Alex Fraser Bridge and the engineering challenges that stand in the way. That's still to come tonight. First, though, the latest poll on B.C. politics is good news for the governing NDP and very bad news for the former Liberal Party. As Aaron MacArthur reports, the new numbers suggest the Liberals' decision to rebrand themselves as B.C. United doesn't appear to be working. All smiles when former Abbotsford mayor and sitting BC United MLA, Bruce Banman, jumped ship and joined the BC Conservative Party. The Conservatives gained another seat and by the numbers, a significant boost in public opinion. That kind of momentum is, uh, you know, it's very satisfying to see, but we still have a long way to go. According to Research Co., the NDP has the most support at 48%. The BC United and BC Conservatives are virtually tied. BC United dropping by 13 points, the Conservatives climbing by 15. The notion of a BC United party that was going to be the de facto progressive um, center-right option uh, is really not what is happening when we look at the data. That drop in support for the BC United seems closely correlated to when the party changed its name. New leader Kevin Falcon dumped BC Liberals in April of this year, and the data shows the decline in support among voters begins almost immediately afterwards. Falcon says rebuilding the brand in voters' minds will take time. When they see our policies, they see our principles, they see the kind of values we stand for, I think, frankly, um, that big coalition we need to win and form government will come together and we're going to win. A split centre-right pool of voters makes the NDP's re-election a much easier proposition. Going back 50 years, a split on the right leads in large part to decisive wins by the NDP. They're competing for the same voters in the same region and seemingly at the moment splitting that vote down the middle, uh, which if it held up a year from now would give the NDP an even larger majority. In. Neither Kevin Falcon nor John Rustad seem willing to discuss a bigger, more unified center-right coalition. Both convinced their brands will grow, but a year out from the next election, that growth may come at each other's expense. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Here goes fast in politics. Keith Baldry joins us with more on the outlook. If these numbers were to hold, Keith? Yeah, we're looking at a doomsday scenario if you're a BC United voter or even a BC Conservative voter, because as Hamish Telford pointed out, they're going after the same pool of voters, and we have seen vo uh, vote splits on the centre-right in the past, as Aaron referred to. Uh, but again, I just did some analysis. To, uh, on the assumption that a Conservative voter is a vote that otherwise would have gone to the United or in previous elections to the BC Liberal, I got three different scenarios to look at based on the 2020 elections uh, results. So if you take a 10% increase in the Conservative vote, not very much at all, but that would put the ND 
NDP uh, keeping their own seats they have now and coming in about 60 to 65 seats in the 93 riding house. 20 percent, you see that increase even more to 65 or 70 seats. So again, very hard for the Conservatives and United to elect members outright when they're splitting the vote. And things get really problematic for the centre-right when they get 30 percent. We're talking wipeout scenario here for the NDP, 70 to 75 seats. And that's probably a low number. It could be in excess of 80 seats and a very small opposition. We have seen historical precedents on this. 2020, for example, the NDP won four seats that had never won before in places like Langley, Chilliwack and Vernon, where the B.C. Conservative candidate got anywhere from 18 to 16 percent of the vote. They formed government in 96 with a lower popular vote than the Liberals, largely because the B.C. Reform Party won two seats. And in 1991, as the Social Credit Party basically imploded, the NDP was able to form government and pat its majority, winning 10 seats, where in each seat got less than 40 percent of the vote, as the then Socreds and the B.C. Liberals split the centre-right vote. And, of course, one of the more famous uh, splits of all, you saw a shot of Dave Barrett and Aaron Story, was in 1972, when the NDP won a historic election victory for the first time, less than 40 percent of the vote, because the then Liberals, Progressive Conservatives and the Social Credit Party split the vote. After that election, Social Credit leader Bill Bennett got together and convinced the Liberals and a couple of Conservatives to come over to his party, put together the Free Enterprise Coalition again, and ruled uh, B.C. for more than a decade. Unless those coalition numbers forces come together in terms of the centre-right, that's basically a pathway to a very large majority, pretty well every time for the NDP, which can mm -hmm. always hold its vote much better than the centre-right can right now. All right, we'll see if we're having the same conversation about this uh, in about a year's time. Thanks, Keith. <laughs> All right. To Ottawa now, the Speaker of the House of Commons has resigned. Anthony Rota had been under fire after inviting a man who fought for the Nazis in the Second World War to attend a speech by Ukraine's president. 98-year-old Yaroslav Hunka was also given a standing ovation during the Friday event in the House. Opposition MPs and even members of his own party have been calling for Rota's resignation ever since. Rota represents the Liberals in a northern Ontario riding. Uh, I, I believe uh, Speaker Rota did exactly the right thing. It's, it's not a happy day uh, for us. Uh, it's a sad day, of course, but the reality is he made the right decision. The Parliament has been tarnished and so many people have been hurt by what happened last Friday. Members of the Jewish community, members of other communities, and uh, Canada's reputation, Canada's parliamentary reputation has taken a, a real hit. There was absolutely no alternative to, to Speaker Rota stepping down. Just ahead, a failing grade for British Columbia. What we're seeing out of this report uh, is reflected on the front lines of food banks. The province's dismal showing in a new report on poverty. And aggressive coyotes where conservation officers are on the lookout after four people were attacked. A two-car crash here in Surrey and northbound traffic on King George Boulevard is down to just a single lane at 60th Avenue. Kermac Collision and Autoglass's newest location is in Vancouver on Southwest Marine Drive, conveniently located between Canby and Oak. Kermac, the most trusted name in collision repair for 50 years. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a crash in Surrey. Food Banks Canada has released its 2023 poverty report, and B.C. has a lot of work to do. Cassidy Moscone has more on where the province has fallen behind. 
and the work that needs to be done to catch up. Report time in Canada, the subject poverty and its grim grades across the nation. Food Banks Canada dishing out a D-plus or worse to eight out of the 14 jurisdictions. British Columbia coming in about the middle, D-plus. Quebec leading the way, B-minus. Nova Scotia, a glaring fail. The housing situation in BC um, is a very, very difficult one. There is an inadequate housing for the number of people um, that live here. The, the housing that is available is, is clearly out of reach so many people in the province. Almost 40% of British Columbians spend more than 30% of their wage on housing. Almost 50% feel worse off financially this year compared to last. And nearly 60% of people believe social assistance rates aren't keeping pace with the cost of living. What we're seeing out of this report is reflected on the front lines of food banks. The report made seven recommendations. Food Banks BC says the key ones are making sure benefits keep pace with inflation, raising income assistance rates and having better supports for renters. We have to do more because people are still hurting. We've been talking with people across the province. We've had more than 10,000 inputs into a new poverty reduction strategy, which I'll be bringing into the legislature this spring. Falling short of a promise to improve next year's grade. We're determined to lift more people out of poverty. Awesome, thank you. But a pledge to reduce the poverty picture. Cassidy Mosconi, Global News. A crosswalk honouring the Indigenous children who were impacted by Canada's residential school system was unveiled in New Westminster today. Spirit of the Children's Society and the Orange Shirt Society worked together to create the new orange crosswalk at Hayek Square. It features the Orange Shirt Society's 2023 Every Child Matters logo, which was designed by a grade 10 student in Alberta. It features an Indigenous child in two hands, surrounded by people a heart and an eagle. Creating uh, the Every Child Matters crosswalk across Canada really sends a message and it also creates conversation and, you know, the dialogue that needs to continue through art pieces. The unveiling of the crosswalk comes ahead of the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation on September the 30th. Well, the memorial totem pole belonging to the Nishka First Nation has arrived back in Canada from the UK. The Nistral Memorial Totem Pole was on display at the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh for nearly a century after being taken without the nation's consent in 1929 and sold to the museum. Delegates from the First Nation travelled to Scotland for the second time in decades to ask again for its return, this time receiving approval from the museum's Board of Trustees. The arrival ceremony for the pole will take place on Friday afternoon. Up next, pushing for suicide prevention. There's no technology at this time that would help us on this bridge. Why there's a roadblock to putting up barriers on the Alex Fraser. Plus. That is very concerning and speaks to uh, a funding formula that is not fair and equitable. The report from BC's seniors advocate blasting for-profit long-term care delivery. Good evening and some good news from Delta. Final clearing stages of a multi-vehicle crash here at Nordell and 112th.
Get 0.99% financing for up to 60 months on a Sierra 1500 Pro. Visit your local GMC dealer today. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a crash in Delta. Well, there's been another series of coyote attacks, this time in Prince George. The Conservation Officer Service was called after four people were bitten in the Parkwood and Connaught Hill neighborhoods early this morning between 345 and 430. The injuries were non-life-threatening. Three of the victims were treated in hospital. It's believed one coyote is responsible for all four attacks, but there may be other aggressive coyotes in the area as well. Officers patrolled, but no coyotes were found. It is a troubling statistic. On average, one person every two weeks attempts to take their life by jumping from a Metro Vancouver bridge. One of the most effective ways to prevent this is a suicide barrier, but it turns out installing them can be more complicated than you might think. Janet Brown now with why they're not more widely used. Fraser Bridge opened in the mid-1980s, a fairly new bridge in Metro Vancouver, but missing from the span, suicide prevention barriers. However, the Iron Workers Memorial Bridge, built in the 1950s, has three-meter-high barriers. A barrier is another deterrent for people. Delta police say barriers on the Alex Fraser would be welcomed to help prevent suicides. I would definitely like to see barriers on the bridge. It would be helpful. And I understand the engineering difficulties they have. Anti-suicide barriers can't be installed on the Alex Fraser. The Transportation Ministry says, unfortunately, the Alex Fraser Bridge was not designed to safely accommodate tall safety fencing, as any additional barrier or fencing would only create stress on the structure, both in weight and aerodynamics, that could impact the stability of the bridge. Here on the sidewalk on the Alex Fraser Bridge, the only thing preventing people from going over is this guardrail. It's roughly four feet or so high, and that's it. The boxes are on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. However, the bridge does have highly visible emergency call boxes with access to counselors, maintained by Main Road Contracting. We do get calls from them, so we're able to help some individuals, but we know that that doesn't actually reduce the overall rate of suicide. But the crisis center says the suicide barriers are far more effective. They reduce the suicide rate from bridges by 93%. In January, traffic was stalled on the Alex Fraser for roughly eight hours until a man in distress eventually had a change of heart. Each one of these crisis calls, as you know, are, are very delicate and some take many, many hours. Delta police say there were 48 calls connected with the Alex Fraser, either for suicide attempts or crisis, between 2020 and 2022, with six confirmed suicides. Janet Brown, Global News. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among youth and young adults in Canada. Three quarters of those who die by suicide are men. Approximately 4,000 people take their own lives in Canada each year. If you are finding yourself in crisis, there is help. You can call 310-6789 in Metro Vancouver or anywhere in BC, 1-800-SUICIDE. That's one 800 784 2433. BC's advocate for seniors is calling for changes after a new report found for-profit long-term care facilities provided fewer hours of care 
than they were paid for. But as Travis Prasad reports, there are concerns over whether this data paints an accurate picture. Contracted for-profit and not-for-profit long-term care centers get $2 billion from the province every year, and they use that money differently. This is something uh, that I think we uh, have to pay greater attention to. Following up on her 2020 report, BC's seniors advocate is out with a new analysis of long-term care facilities' revenue and expenditures for 2021 and 22. The report says not-for-profit centers delivered 93,000 care hours more than they were funded for, while the for-profit long-term care sector delivered 500,000 hours less than they were funded for. Not-for-profits are spending more on direct care, uh, less on their buildings, and less on profit. The report also found 80% of all profits in long-term care are concentrated to just 20% of facilities, most of them for profit. That is very concerning and speaks to uh, a funding formula that is not fair and equitable to all operators across the system. For-profit centres make seven times the money per bed than their non-profit counterparts, according to the analysis. Like them or not, the health minister says for-profit facilities are critical to the system. A lot of people come to me and say, well, we prefer that the public beds were just in public health authority owned and operated facilities. Well, right now they're about a third of the beds, right? We need to provide care for people. We need to increase the number of beds we have. The representative for some of BC's contracted long-term care centres questions the report's data taken during the COVID-19 pandemic. Health authorities and the ministry are still going through a process to reconcile all the expenses and revenues for that period. Terry Lake does agree with the advocate's call for a new funding formula in long-term care to ensure taxpayers get the most for their money and seniors get the level of care they need. Travis Prasad, Global News. Still to come tonight, the historic sports club with the strange name. Number one question is, what is a Mariloma? The answer to that and the rest of the Mariloma's surprising past later. And up next, chilling signs that climate change is ramping up. All your local news. All your breaking news. All the news you need. Get it at 6. Global News Hour at 6. Researchers are ringing alarm bells over data which shows sea ice around Antarctica has reached record low levels. They're calling the situation extreme and are renewing calls for a faster transition to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Global's Kyle Benning has more. The U.S. National Snow and Ice Data Center says signs of climate change appear to be ramping up, with Antarctic sea ice melting faster than ever before. And experts say it could hold large impacts to regional and global ecosystems. The center says this year's maximum sea ice level is about 1 million square kilometers less than the previous record low set in 1986. For context, that is about the same size as British Columbia. And the average maximum amount of sea ice between 1981 to 2010 compared to this year is about 1.75 million square kilometers less, about the size of BC and Alberta combined. Experts say sea ice is necessary for penguins who use it to breed and rear their young on top of other environmental factors. It affects ecosystems, it affects fisheries, it affects global climate and it affects our sea level. So it's actually something that's really important in, in the Earth system um, and that we should care about. 
Monash University's Aryan Perk says last year's drop in sea ice levels was responsible for around 9,000 penguin drownings. This comes as sea ice levels were at a record low during the Southern Hemisphere's summer months in February. The ice plays a role in Earth's energy balance reflecting sunlight back into space. It has experts concerned about whether this level of decline will become a trend. The NSIDC says this is a preliminary report with a full analysis expected early next month. Kyle Benning, Global News. Good news on the wildfire front in Peachland. The Glen Lake wildfire is not expected to grow any further and is now classified as held. BC Wildfire announced the change in status to the fire earlier today, noting the more favorable weather and reduced fire activity. Yesterday, the same conditions led to evacuation alerts and orders being stepped back. Similar moves were also made with regard to the Bush Creek East wildfire burning in the Thompson-Nicola Regional District. In the South Okanagan, all evacuation alerts were rescinded for those affected by the Upper Park Rill Creek wildfire. All right, let's bring in meteorologist uh, Christy Gordon now with a look at our weather forecast. That's some good news, Christy. That is some good news for sure, Sophie. A little bit of rain helps things, that's for sure. So across the lower mainland, we saw anywhere between 10, sorry, not across the lower mainland, across the south coast entirely, we saw anywhere from 10 to 50 millimeters of rain lasting through the interior regions, but there have been some improvement. We had over 400 fires uh, only a week ago. Now we're at 384 and we only have six fires of note, whereas at the peak, we had 11 fires of note. So certainly some good news. And when we look at the forest fire danger rating, it is very low in many areas. I want you to remember, though, we're still dealing with excessive drought, and uh, the campfire ban is still in place for much of the province. So don't be uh, sort of complacent. Make sure that you're uh, following those rules, indeed, because we don't need any uh, human-caused fires. So this is the precipitation. It's been very spotty, indeed. So that's why we're seeing a wide range in the amount of precipitation. We've got another wave that is going to move on shore tonight. We'll see more consistent rain across the south coast overnight and likely early tomorrow morning before we're back to very spotty conditions once again. There's that wave early tomorrow morning shifting inland, bringing the spotty showers all across the region. So for the most part, areas can expect all across the province spotty rainfall on and off tomorrow and again on Thursday. And you may see some sunshine in the mix, but certainly the waves of rainfall will come and go, especially across the south coast. Much cooler indeed. We're below seasonal for this time of year with highs of only 16 degrees. Again, two more days of unsettled weather, Sophie, before we'll start to clear out a little bit late in the day on Friday. We still have a chance of showers early Friday, but overall, as we head into the weekend, a little bit of a break from the rainfall, but we're hoping it returns next week. Tonight's central windows weather window comes to you from Kelowna. Denise shared this with us where we still do have a risk of thunderstorms all across southern BC, but they're very isolated. And boy, did Kelowna get hit just after four o'clock. It came down the hail, as you can see there, almost creating rivers out in the, um, in the streets there. So thanks, Denise, for sharing video with us of that. I was going to say, I can't tell. I don't have my glasses on, but it looks, I can't tell if that's a street or a river. It <laughs> it's is a little a bit of both. Turn, yeah, exactly. All right, thanks, Christy. Well, Squire is here now. Hello, Squire. Hello, Sophie. What do you um, have for us? Well, one of the things I have is uh, Richmond's Cameron Rogers, who is a world champion. This sort of crazy title I haven't fully wrapped my mind around. She is the best women's hammer thrower on the planet Earth. 
And she has a gold medal to prove it. How dizzy they must get after that. Also ahead. Once a Mariloma, always a Mariloma. The Marilomas hit a milestone. The club's colorful history later. It's okay. Wait. Okay, that's close enough. Oh, okay. That, no, no, it's fine. Oh, oh right here. Okay, good. Am okay. I good? This is good. Okay, I think, I think we're set this, this is a good distance? Well. Oh, no, this you're thing, moving This in. thing in the red thing is like... Oh, yeah, it looks me. like it's coming out of your head. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so now I'm going to talk about the Canucks. Uh, practice today, we saw Ilya Mikheyev get out there, test his knee. Of course, he had surgery on it. He uh, was skating for a while with Pedersen and Kuzmenko on the top line. I think the Canucks would like to see that line in the regular season, but he did leave practice early, possibly because they don't want him to overdo it just yet. Now, uh, Vancouver says in its next two preseason games, tomorrow they'll be in Edmonton, you will see more NHL players in the lineup, so I don't think they're going to lose 10-0 again. The uh, Vancouver Whitecaps' long and winding road comes to an end tomorrow night in Colorado, game seven of seven on this trip that never seemed to end. It started great. It's kind of gone off the rails the past few games, although the Caps should have least have tied their last game against Real Salt Lake. A bit of bad luck and bad goalkeeping. Uh, Colorado, though, is the worst team in the West. They have a bad defense, and the Whitecaps need points to move up from seventh place in the standings, so they aren't going to play this game safe, says Vanny Sartini. It's truly Andiamo. It's not one of these, okay, if we lose, maybe we need to tie. No, no, let's go and try to win. That's the, that's the idea for tomorrow. So try to be as offensive as we can. I think that... Uh, uh, you know, like we did for the, in the last in the, all the road trips. I, the only game that he was a little bit of meh was in Houston. All the other games, I think we've been, we've been the better team on the field. We've been very unlucky in uh, in Salt Lake. So let's uh, let's keep back those three points and uh, and go into the fourth place. Now, the recent World Athletic Championships, both hammer throwing gold medals were won by BC athletes. Nanaimo's Ethan Katzberg won the men's event and Richmond's Cameron Rogers won the women's. And she is now the favorite to win gold at the next Olympics. So not only is it a beautiful gold medal, it's also laid in the track that they used in the stadium, in the actual competition stadium. This is just for fun. This is just the icing on the gold medal winning cake. When I say Cameron Rogers, world champion, what comes to mind, what do you think of? <laughs> I feel like the first thing, honestly, that comes to my mind is it still feels kind of unbelievable. Like it's still this sort of crazy title I haven't fully wrapped my mind around. <laughs> A year ago, Cameron Rogers won silver in the hammer throw at the World Athletics Championships. Last month in Budapest, Hungary, Rogers literally dropped the hammer on her competition by delivering her gold medal winning toss of 77.3 meters on her very first throw. You know, everyone steps into a competition and is always after the same thing. You know, everyone has the same goal going into a major championship and it's to do as well as you can, but of course to get on the podium and then even the medal. So <laughs> I think being able to walk away now with this gold medal shows that we've, we're on the right path. 
It's a path that started here at Minaru Park in Richmond when Cameron was just 12 years old. She instantly took to track and field, the only sport she's ever participated in, and the medal soon followed, all the while having the loving support of a devoted mother who's proudly supported her daughter every step and countless hammer throws made over the last decade and a bit. Hard to, hard to put it into words how I'm feeling. Um, she's my shining star, literally. Um, always super humble, ultra fierce when she's competing, um, resilient, uh, relentless. Uh, nothing stands in her way. So I know that this was a huge dream of hers and nothing will was going to or will stand in her way to make to make that happen or future things happen. Rogers is already back training because her next goal is Olympic gold. This after missing the podium in her first Olympic Games. Nothing fully prepares you for the moment when you're practicing and you have like the world record holder and second and third all time all competing together. On the day of competition, anything can happen, but I think that's why the experience of going to more big international competitions has been so amazing because you you learn what to expect. You learn how you operate and what's best for you and how to fight for yourself when the time comes as well. And so I think going into Paris, it's going to be a different experience, but better. Well, Canada's women's soccer team tonight qualified for next year's Olympics. And it was VC's Jordan Heidemann with the winning goal here against Jamaica. Now, this was a two-game total goal series. Canada won it 4-1. to one. Canada, of course, are the defending Olympic champions, but we are only ranked 10th in the world right now. But we will be part of the 12-team tournament 2024 in Paris. There you go. Okay, thank you, Squire. Up next, the fascinating history of Vancouver's long-running amateur sports club, the Marilomas, and their surprising connection to mermaids. Wow. We'll tell you next. Cool. This is BC is brought to you by Johnston Meyer Insurance Agencies Group. 50 years of trust in your community. Jordan Armstrong here now with a look ahead to Global News at 11 tonight. Jordan? Sophie, tonight we'll find out how one of Canada's wealthiest municipalities is reacting to the housing supply targets set by the B.C. government. Mention supportive housing or below market rentals and the first community to come to mind probably isn't West Vancouver. But Mayor Mark Sager is confident West Van can meet the province's targets. We'll hear from him and residents tonight on Global News at 11. Sophie? All right, thanks for that, Jordan. Well, you've probably heard the name Marilomas at some point, but perhaps have had only a vague idea of what that means. Well, I'm here to tell you it is Vancouver's premier amateur sports club, but really, it's so much more than that. And it's celebrating a milestone this year. Jada Rand has more on the club's colorful past, its ties to the BC Lions and the Rolling Stones, and the answer to the question we're all asking, what is a Mariloma? Once a Mariloma, always a Mariloma. An easy mantra to remember, but a name that needs a little explanation for those outside of the club. Number one question is, what is a Mariloma? First part comes from mermaid, and then Loma was from the Greek uh, alphabet. Mermaids was the name of the original swim club founded in 1923, but expansion came quick, and a year later the number of teams started to grow. They then moved, you know, f from the just the Kitts Beach to 
the field. Club directors who helped build Mariloma football were instrumental in bringing a professional team to town. The BC Lions adopted the colors of this club, black and orange. If these walls could talk, for decades the clubhouse at Connaught Park has been home to members who've become entrenched in the community. Every year we fundraise for the food bank, uh, we donate to Kit's house. Every year we're going around raking leaves of the neighbor's yards. Security detail has also been a job the club has taken on over the years. Once called in to keep a watch at a Rolling Stones concert in the 90s. We stood all around keeping an eye on the guests, making sure that they didn't do anything stupid, um, and they didn't. New seasons to celebrate the past century, to hear the stories passed down through generations and make new memories to last a lifetime. What's a, a Mariloma? Always a Mariloma. And that's what we want to instill upon people. This clubhouse is a second home to everybody. It's a sports organization, but it's, it's a family to most. Jay Durant, Global News. And now you know what a Mariloma is. If you know someone who has a great story to tell, just email your ideas to Jay at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. Who knew? Well, apparently a lot of people knew. I did not know. But now we know. Well, a Chris is a Mariloma, is he not? I think he is. Or at least he talks about them a lot. So, <laughs> I don't know. He wishes he was. Didn't, didn't he play rugby with them, I thought? Probably. It's ironic that on the day we are running a story about the Marilomas, Chris is not here. <laughs> the one guy who could answer all our questions. Uh, right. We'll have to call him. I wonder him. if he was one of the security guys for the Rolling Stones that night. Uh, Chris? Yeah. Oh, yeah, probably. If he was a Mariloma at the probably. time. Probably. <laughs> okay, quick word on the weather, Christy. Uh, sure. Rain on and off tomorrow and again on Thursday. All right. Have a good night, everyone. Thanks for joining us. season of 911 on a new night Thursday March 14th on Global Stream on Stack TV